Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to another episode of Horse Hour. I'd like to introduce you to a very special guest this week, and she is all the way from Tennessee, USA. Frances Thomas, she's the international and best-selling author. She's founder of Cowgirls with Curves, a horse show judge and instructor, a competitor. There's so much to get into today. Frances, how are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. Good. Now, your blog is, is really got me gripped. Um, it's called Cowgirls with Curves. It's hugely successful. And can you explain to me how you started the blog? Um, it's, <laughs> it's kind of a little bit of a, of a long story in a way. Um, I've barrel raced. I've done a lot of different things. And I, I love to ride, you know, different disciplines. I barrel race. You know, I'll ride Hunter. Um, I just picked up an eventing prospect that I'm going to be riding. But one thing that I have noticed clear across the board um, is that there is a prejudice against plus-size riders, clear across the board, regardless of disciplines. Um, and I've always been on, on the chunkier side. I've always been strong. Um, you know, I, I work out in the hay field and put up square bales of hay every year. Um, so I'm strong, you know, but people see a plus-size rider and they think they're not strong or they're not able to ride. And so... The older I get, <laughs> you know, the more it kind of it hits home. And um, as a as a judge, I see those same secure insecurities in other riders sometimes. And I thought, you know, we need to kind of encourage each other. And and the more that I've seen um, some of the plus size models get notoriety worldwide, I mean, you know, it's they're turning into superstars. I thought, you know, we need that for the horse industry. The horse industry is behind the times in that regards. Um, you know, we're just not welcoming them as well. And so that's kind of what got me started with writing the blog because I, I just want to encourage other writers that feel those same insecurities. Well, your story is inspirational. From, you, you go into quite a lot. You're very honest. And you go into a lot of detail about, you know, your upbringing and how you felt when you were bringing out the hay, hay bells for your dad and, you know, you were working on the farm. And, 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 and it's so honest that I think it is inspirational because you're completely right. We all do suffer from a lot of 
I don't know if it's just society as a whole or if it's the equine industry and whether you're whether you're larger whether you're smaller whether you work too hard you don't spend enough time with your horses whether you're not feeding them the right stuff or you haven't got the right saddle they're they're so judgmental yes yes (laughs) and as a judge how do you find it when you go into these competitions Uh, uh, for me as an amateur and I go to a few competitions I remember my first competition was two years ago I'm 30 now Francis (laughs) and my first competition I got my first horse at 28 and my first competition was two years ago and I went in like a 13 year old girl I was so excited and I felt uncomfortable from the minute I got in there because there's this persona with dressage that you're not allowed to talk and you're not allowed to say anything and you have to look the right way and you have to know what you're doing even though you've never done it before my mum was so nervous that she laughed out loud and fell on the floor because (laughs) you know she tripped over fell on the floor it was in the front of a horse box we're all laughing and finding it funny but actually the the whole um atmosphere was you can't behave like that that isn't what dressage people do is this something as a judge that you're trying to wipe out a little bit, yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, I. <laughs> I mean, life is too short to be too serious, anyway. Mm-hmm. And and I do, and I will say that we are a little bit less formal, probably, than you guys are, you know, over there in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing about it is, we do have a lot of formalities. But I judge at an open level, open horse shows. Um, and one of the things that I love is, you know, these are people that are coming to get some practice, get some experience, and they don't have the money to buy the best horse. They don't have the money for the best clothes and the best tack. And often, especially at that level, um, they're just bringing a horse and they're just trying to figure it out and they're doing their own training because they don't even have, they barely have money for their feed bill, let alone lessons. Mm -hmm. And that's really kind of um, where my heart is at because I know what it's like to be in those shoes. Years ago, and I, and I think it made a huge impact, um, I bought a an off-the-track appendix quarter horse and had him for a few months, and I went to show him at my very first quarter horse, official quarter horse show. And like you, I was an adult, and I had worked, I was working in the Arab industry, grooming and training and that sort of thing, but I was not working in the quarter horse industry. And so that morning, I was running a little bit late for my class. I didn't get my horse in the arena before my class. And, I mean, they were just, they were a whole lot more formal and, you know, spot on than what I was used to. So I was running a little bit late. Well, I got in in the class, and because my horse was green (laughs) and hadn't been in the arena, he spooked. And he spooked in front of somebody else. And then there was no way I could prevent it. It was just one of those things. Yes. And this girl cussed me out in the middle of the class. And I, I was just proud of my horse because we got around the, you know, we got around the ring. I mean, yeah. he spooked, but you know, other than that, we had a good ride. And she, I mean, she did. She blasted me so bad. And I made it through the class. And as soon as I hit the out gate, I was bawling. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just, I was devastated. I was so hurt by that. And it's an experience that I never forgot. And I thought, you know, we we take this so seriously. And, yeah, there's money involved in that sort of thing, you know. But at the end of the day, what really matters is where our heart is at with these horses, you know. And are we learning and, and are we growing with, with the horse? I mean, you know, 
Um, none of this superficial stuff really matters at the end of the day when you get right down to it. And we all start riding because we want to have fun. We love the horses. It's supposed to be a hobby and an enjoyment. And most of us ride at a kind of semi-amateur professional level. You know, we might go for competitions right. at the weekends and it's supposed to be fun. And there should be, we should be encouraging each other. You know, if you see the girl at the, or the lady at the arena and her horse is freaking out, it doesn't hurt to offer help rather than staring, going, oh my God, what is she doing over there? You know, she's doing this wrong or she's doing the other. Yeah. So um, let's talk about your book then. You've written a book. Yes. The title of it is Lost Betrayal. Mm-hmm. Um, and Basically, it's it, just in a nutshell, it's it's about um, this girl who lives in Georgia, and a tornado touches down on her farm, devastates her farm, and in the process, she loses her best barrel horse. And the story is what happens to this girl and this horse, um, they're separated, he gets lost, the horse gets lost, and so she's looking for the horse throughout the whole book. Um, and I won't ruin the ending, but, um, you know, it's, it's a pretty pretty deep story, pretty tragic story that it stops and makes you think about what can happen, you know, in, in a disaster type scenario with these animals. And, and a lot of it is based, a lot of the story is based on truth and things that I've seen in the news or been, exper- you know, have experienced. So the gist of the story is, you know, this, the journey between the girl that owns the ranch and the horse that gets lost. Have you lost horses? No, I have not. But um, the what really inspired this story was years ago we had a hurricane um, in North Carolina um, that that flooded half of the state, and in the process of that, I learned that large animals are the last to be rescued. They're the last to receive help, and they're the last to receive supplies. They're not. Their needs are not. Um, publicized as well as say the Red Cross and a lot of times when you try to take supplies for large animals they're not accepted because they're only accepting human supplies and that was my experience through that flood well then a couple years ago um, we had a horrendous line of tornadoes that went through Oklahoma and during that period of time during those storms I happened to be about an hour away from there at a barrel race and we were under a tornado warning and our horses had no cover. And so, you know, we seen all of the, the news uh, reels from that and stuff. And my heart just ached. I wanted to go help because I knew yeah. what the story was that wasn't being betrayed on the news with these large animals. Um, and actually, a horse farm did get hit in that in that case. It was a racehorse farm and they, they lost. I mean, the horses were just piled up. It was tragic. Mm. It was so tragic. And that's when I said, you know what, I need to finish the book. I, I started the book 10 years ago, um, over 10 years ago, when I had the experience with the flood. And when when I went through that tornado experience, that's what really kicked my butt in gear and said, <laughs> I need to write this story. What happened with you when you were in, in Oklahoma near the tornado? How did you get out of there? We were in Fort Smith, um, Arkansas, which was about a, an hour away from where the tornadoes were. And it was the same line of storms that hit Oklahoma that come through where we were. We were a little bit, I think, north of there. But anyway, um, and we were under tornado warning, and there was a tornado that touched down. It didn't touch down right on us, but they evacuated everybody into the only building that they could there on the showgrounds. 
And there were many horses that were out in the temporary stalls, like out in the parking lot. Um, and we only had like a covered arena to bring the horses in. My, my horse was in the barns, but it was still like a covered arena. And so, you know, we were all thinking, you know, what's going on? We were all worried about our horses because they really didn't have any true shelter. Mm. Um, and so we we were in the we were in the building for about three hours waiting the storm out. Unfortunately, we did not get hit directly, but you know it's a scary feeling because we're in like I said we're in East Tennessee. <laughs> we don't have tornadoes like that. We're not used to that, and so it's a very scary um, scenario to be in that and know you don't really have any kind of you know, protection for your animals and you're kind of helpless, you know. So it, that was an experience that I'll never forget. I mean, it's, it just stops and makes you think. Yeah, absolutely. Well, nobody would want to be in a tornado, you, you know, looking after themselves, but then to have your animals as well. The thing, the thing is with dogs and cats, you can grab them and run, but, but right. horses and cattle, you can't, you, you, it's so painful to let them go and think and just pray, just hope that they'll be okay. And that's usually what a lot of people do. They, you know, try to let nature take care of itself. But, and in the process, you know, there's horses, well, large animals all over the place that, you know, are never found. And they do, there's a lot of them that don't make it, you know, in a tornado scenario. So, I mean, it is very devastating. It's heartbreaking. It's very heartbreaking. And the ones that do make it, a lot of times have horrendous injuries mm. and have to be put down, you know, now after the fact so it's it's very heartbreaking are there charities that help raise money to to help protect them or to help with people that have suffered from floods and been hit by tornadoes and hurricanes after that tornado hit in oklahoma they did start like a large animal rescue organization and basically they're kind of like a resource group for anytime there's a disaster whether it be tornado or flood fire or whatever they're a resource group to get word out about needing supplies, needing help. You know, because not everybody can just go, you know, lead a panic horse, you know, out of a bunch of rubble. So, um, you know, they they started that organization in Oklahoma um, as a resource for those folks so that when something happens, they know who to go to. Because before, we really didn't, you know, there wasn't any organization much like that. There, there were a few here and there, but they were not well organized. And so within the last year or so, Oklahoma and Texas, too, have both gotten better organized and have, are better connected. So I'm, I'm glad to see that come out of, of that disaster. I'd never heard of that. I'm being totally honest. Hadn't even thought about it. I've driven, we don't get really, we don't get tornadoes and hurricanes in the UK. But I, you know, you see it on the news and you do think, well, what would you do? But I don't think you ever realize the impact and how, how, how it really does affect you does that make sense you think oh you know because we all always imagine that you've you've got your it may be very naive and I apologize in advance but you know we imagine that you have things under your houses basements where you can go where you're safe so I just would presume that it would be big enough to have all your animals and your horses and everything get them all under the house but I guess you can't no no and especially around Texas and Oklahoma they have such big farms I mean they'll have three or four hundred horse head of horses you know um but and they're starting uh, there's a couple of companies that are starting to build tornado shelters for horses which is really neat, but of course the cost is is huge, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but I mean, like we had the the fires out in California recently. You know, we've had weeks and weeks of fires, and I mean they have to do things like um, 
you know, put their phone number in white paint on their horse's hooves so that if those horses are found, they know who they belong to. You know, I mean, there's things like that. They, you know, spray paint their number on the side, you know, the side of their bodies, things like that, that you just never, you never think about unless you're, you happen to run across that. And um, years ago, before that hurricane that I was talking about, you know, I was the same, I'd never thought about it. Mm -hmm. And then when I became aware of it, it just broke my heart. Yeah. And I thought, you know, so many people, they don't realize, you know, the needs that are there. Because they're never, nobody ever realizes that. They never talk about it. It's never publicized. Well, you're great because you're very well known within the industry because you're a judge as well and because you barrel race. So you can be a great voice for that. Can you tell me about your barrel racing? What's it like? Well, (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay, okay. I'll be honest. I'll be honest. We secretly want to be cowgirls. We really do. I think every girl in the UK dreamt of being like a really cool, diamonded up cowgirl. So tell me about Good. life as a cowgirl. Well, I get to be a cowgirl at night and on the weekends. Uh-huh. Um, I work a day job in an office like everybody else because I got to pay the feed bill and the <laughs> you know um, the mortgage and all of that. But um, I do get to ride at night and on the weekends. And like, I mean, I'm just like everybody else out there. I ride when I can. You know, I, I do the judging and do the lessons. You know, to make extra money to go show, basically. <laughs> You know, so that cuts in on, unfortunately, that cuts some time on my own riding time. Um, but it's it's a lot of fun. I mean, the, the barrel industry is, is a really good group of people. You have a lot of just normal people that get out there and, you know, do the best they can with their horses. And um, it's it's just neat. It's, it's an adrenaline rush, you know, to run down that alleyway and be looking for that first barrel and, and um, I kind of—I'll be honest with you—I'm not the best barrel racer in the world. <laughs> I have my horse is huge, <laughs> and um, when I first started riding him, um, he—I was so intimidated because he's—he's like 15, three, almost 16 hands, every bit of 1,250 pounds, and you know to be running full speed ahead on something that big when—and I had been showing pleasure for several years before that. You know, it's it's a big adjustment. Um, and I'm just now kind of getting to the point where I feel comfortable on him and I'm starting to ask more speed out of him. Um, this last year we had shoeing issues and he was off all year long. So I didn't really get to run him. He had what we call a negative palmer angle. Mm-hmm. He, his heel was too low. So his angle, he was causing too much stress in his joints. So we had to completely go back and try some new shoeing. Um, and part of the time the shoes would come off, you know, mm. so it took us a long time to get some new shoes. So I've not really been able to run him that much this year, but I'm hoping to start back next year. But I've hauled him to the uh, Oklahoma City Futurity, the BFA, and the Fort Smith Futurity just to go and have fun. You know, <laughs> it's it's a once-in-a-lifetime trip. And I've had a blast. So it's it's really neat. Did you train him from the beginning? No, I did not. He actually was trained by Joel Sherlin of Athens, Tennessee. And the interesting thing about that is, is I don't, have you heard of the RFD American no. uh, rodeo barrel race? It's a big million dollar barrel race. And they started it just a couple of years ago. And it was making headlines and all of this stuff because you could, the average person could go and qualify at certain races. Well, in America, men are not allowed to barrel race. Only women are. Oh, wow. And the final event is an actual rodeo. 
but they were going to let guys barrel race for the first time. And the only guy that made it to the semifinals, it was his dad that trained my barrel horse. He's also my farrier. Oh, wow. So, I mean, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, he's... He's a fabulous horse anyway, but he has got a lot of training on him, too. So I'm, I'm very blessed in that regard. I'm surrounded by great cowboys. <laughs> <laughs> Please tell me they're hot. Good looking. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The majority of them are. Yeah. <laughs> so how many horses have you got? We have right now we have um, eight and then I have one donkey. Um, <laughs> and the donkey is a rescue that just the owner's turned him loose and would not catch him. And he's still a stud. So my horses were fighting with him over the fence. So I had to catch him and he was wild as a buck. And, but he runs, he rules the roost. He runs the farm, you know, and he's spoiled rotten. (laughs) His name is Oscar. And I post a lot of pictures on on Twitter of Oscar. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not surprised you don't have much time to ride. You know, you're working and you're trying to compete and you've got your your main competition horse and then you've got seven other horses to ride at the same time. How on earth do you fit it all in? I get up between 3.30 and 4 every day just about during the week. And it's that that is one of the key things, I think, in being able to get everything done. Because I have that little bit of quiet time in the morning that, you know, I can kind of knock things out a little quicker. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it wasn't for that, there's a lot that I wouldn't get done. Um, but, and my husband helps me too. Like, in, in a lot of times in the evenings, he'll do stalls. So that helps. Oh, good. Um, and then we both jump in and, you know, feed and turn out in the evening. So Does he ride as well? He does some. Not as much as, as I do, of course. But um, he likes to sort cattle. So if there's a, a cattle sorting we can go to, then, you know, we'll go and he'll ride. He, he really enjoys that. And, and sometimes he'll go, you know, we'll get a chance to go on a trail ride. Oh, nice. So. Have you ever been to, um, have you ever been to the Calgary Stampede in Canada? No, I have not. I've always wanted to go. It's like a dream. Oh, yeah. That's just, that's just one of those bucket list <laughs> trips right there, mm-hmm. you know. It's definitely, I've heard it's amazing. Each year I've started getting emails about it now. They've started emailing me because I signed up once and it's every year I think, oh, I must go because they they literally take over the whole of Calgary in Canada for three days, don't they? And it's all about, you get all the Western saddles and the bridles and they have rodeo and it's just amazing. And it's very different between riding in the US and riding in the UK in terms of safety. So you guys are very rarely see having to wear hats. And over here, we're sticklers for our hats and our body protectors and, you know, high-vis, everything safety. Do you do you have your own safety regulations over there or is it quite free-spirited? Um, for the most part, it's free-spirited. I mean, some of your local shows um, and, and some of the more local organizations like what we call 4-H, which is basically a youth group Mm -hmm. um, or youth organization where kids show. Some of those do require, especially youth, to wear helmets. Um, But, and depending on the show, some of the shows themselves will, you know, an independent show will require it. Um, And, of course, we do require it, you know, for our English classes. All of our English classes require it. But as far as the Western, they've not really required it yet. Um, I barrel race in a helmet just because I don't feel comfortable. I've, I've ridden Hunter a lot, so I'm used to wearing one. Mm. Um, but I just feel better when I wear one when I'm barrel racing. Um, but I don't wear it. I'll be honest with you. I don't wear it all the time. It kind of depends on, you know, which horse I'm riding. If they're a little bit 
more of a handful, you know, I pull the, pull the helmet out, you know, but, um, but it's not really monitored that much. And, you know, as, as far as the Western sports go. Yeah. I bought a Western saddle this year. I decided I've got a Frisian cross gelder lander. Mm-hmm. And I thought um, I'm going to get a, get a Western saddle and then I can go around the forest and just take it nice and easy and chilled. However, I'm also very safety conscious. So, and he's only a youngster. He's only six. So I had my helmet on. I had my zip up body protector that's quite big and bulky. I had all my high vis on and this really cool Western saddle that came from Texas, actually. Oh, came all the way from over there. So I'd only ridden for about 15 minutes and I had to jump off. And as I jumped off, my body protector got caught on the horn of the Western saddle. Oh, no. So I'm flapping around like a fish. I can't move. My hat, my legs are, are hanging off the side of the saddle and I had to pull the saddle down because it doesn't have a quick release on the on the uh, girl yeah. so I had to pull the saddle down to be able to unhook my body protector to get it off the thing is I won't ride without a body protector because he's so young so now I have to wait until he's trained until I don't need to wear a body protector so I can use my western saddle <laughs> <laughs> the ridiculous thing is I thought I'd be so much safer in a western saddle because I'd have something to hold on to but actually no no it didn't work no 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 I just look like an idiot. Every time I wear a button-up or snap-up shirt when I when I barrel race, I hook my shirt on the saddle horn almost every single time. <laughs> so, yeah, the horns are you got to be careful with the yeah. horns. They're they're deeper seated. You grab on, but if you've got anything to catch on them, they'll catch. <laughs> so, have you ever had any like really scary experiences barrel racing? Because you got to be brave to do it. Um, you know, fortunately, uh, fortunately, knock on wood, I have not. Um, the first time that I ran at Oklahoma, well, actually, I guess at Fort Smith and Oklahoma both, because you run in so hard mm. to that first barrel and because you have to, because competition is, is tough. It's close. So you really push your horse hard coming into that first barrel, but then you have to shut down to get around that barrel quickly. And in both cases, I was running harder and sat down too hard, too quick and, I almost got dashboarded on the first barrel on both races, and that was that was pretty scary. I mean, I, I recovered and and did okay, but you know that <laughs> that definitely gave me pause. You know, to to think I need to get a little bit better at this. But um, I, as far as actual accidents, I mean, I've gotten bucked off, and you know, I've had broke ribs and oh, broke wow. wrists and. You know, and that sort of thing. Um, but I've been very fortunate in that it's not been, you know, extremely scary. You yeah. know, painful, yes, but it's in um, the blood, though, isn't it? Yeah. You just get back on and you keep going. It's like an addiction. You do, you do. And for me, you know, here we always have a saying that if you don't get back on, you won't ride mm-hmm. because you'll be too scared. Um, and I actually rode with a broke wrist and broke ribs for about 30 minutes because I made my, I got bucked clean out of the saddle. I mean, clean out of the saddle, um, and broke my wrist and broke my ribs. And, um, you know, I got back on and rode for about 30 minutes Mm. because I'm, you know, I was afraid if I didn't, I would be scared the next time. So, um, yeah, you just, you just suck it up and get back on, (laughs) you know, just a mindset, I think really. Um, Francis, you seem like such a lovely, outgoing, bubbly person. Can I ask you about, um, for over here, it's quite a touchy subject, which are the Tennessee walking horses. What are your thoughts on them? 
You know, there we since we're right in the middle of Tennessee walking horse country, um, and um, I actually, you know, have relatives that have shown the padded up walking horses. And years ago, I worked for about six months for a walking horse trainer and saw the horses get, at the time, I didn't know any better. I just wanted a job in the horse industry. Mm. Um, but I saw those horses get fixed, you know, firsthand. I mean, they put mustard oil and uh, diesel fuel in a dropper and they'll put them on, on their legs and they'll wrap them overnight with saran wrap so that they blister. And I was, part, you know, I've seen that firsthand. It goes on. People can say that it doesn't, but it's accepted. Um, and it breaks my heart because for two reasons. One is what they're doing to the horses, obviously. But two, what does it say about an industry when they're okay, when everybody is okay with cheating? Yeah. You know, it, it's just, you know, so it's, um, I would love to see those horses go natural and for all of the soaring and things to go away for them to pull the pads because those horses that are on pads, they never, ever get turned out ever because they can't, they'll break a leg. And so I would love to see them shown naturally, but you know, until, until they start judging differently, it's not going to change. I'm afraid. I mean, it'll change, but it'll take a long time. Um, because there's a lot of the good old boy system, you know, going on of people looking the other way. Um, and, and you've got judges that'll place trainers because they know in a few weeks their horse is going to be in front of them, you know, in front of them too. And so you've got a lot of that that goes on, and it's just sad. It goes on. People say, you know, people in the walking horse industry say that it doesn't go on, but it does. It does. If it didn't, we wouldn't have the government involved checking horses at the horse shows. You yeah. know, you've got abuse in every discipline. I mean, there's abuse in dressage and jumping and barrel racing. And all of that, but the walking horses are the only ones that have the government involved right now. And that may, that in itself, to me, makes a statement. So um, there's a lot of push to get them more natural. So I'm hoping at some point that will happen. It'll be a lot better for the horses and ultimately a lot better for the industry, I think. Yeah, definitely. Because I can understand um, why they why it's such a big competition. Why do they want the horses to walk like that? Well, years ago, I mean, one of the things that they judge walking horses on is their stride, how far they reach from the back to the front, and then also how how much knee action, how high that knee goes. Um, and so what happens, the, the process for soaring, what happens and the reason they do it is that when you soar their, their legs like that, it's basically like a really bad sunburn. So then you grease that up a little bit and you put chains on it so that when that chain slides down that leg, it hits that sunburned skin and the horse basically yanks its foot up, you know, try, you know, kind of like reaction. And so all of these years, they started fixing horses, soaring them. And of course, those horses started placing because they had the highest knee action. It was like, boy, look at that horse. And it was big compared to a horse that hadn't been fixed. Mm. Well, we've built a whole industry on a fake process on a horse that doesn't reach that high when left to natural, you know, natural devices. So, um, that's the, that's the reason it's kind of escalated from there. You know, it started out as you've got a horse that they fixed that was flashier that had more knee action. And, you know, when you start judging and, and looking for that and nobody else can compete with it, then they start fixing too. 
And what are the government doing then? You said the government are involved because I would imagine that I can't, can, none of us can understand why there aren't welfare in there saying this is absurd, you guys need to be shut down. So what, what are the government doing? They, they show up basically at, at, the show, at the shows and they check these horses for soaring, scarring and things like that. Um, usually what happens when they show, when the government folks show up at a show, you'll have probably three quarters of the contestants leave because they know they're not going to get through. Um, and they can be fined, you know, um, in certain cases they can be brought up on criminal charges just depending on how bad it is. Mm. Um, but you know, basically they're, you know, they just can't show really is, is the bottom line of it. You know, if they're at all the shows, but you've, you've still got, they can't make every single show. So that's where the people go. But, um, you would you would think, and it is starting to get more um, notoriety. We've got some court cases going on. We've had some cases in which people have brought in cameras and gotten evidence for like three months on end and that sort of thing, and that helps. But, you know, it's. I think part of it is, too, that they've got to have enough evidence that will stand up in a court of law, mm. you know, and that takes time and investigation and that sort of thing. So it's probably a resource thing as well, I would think. I feel like they let down... The rest of the industry who, when we look at barrel racing and we look at Western riding and we look at UK English riding, most people want to do it naturally, softly, gently. It's about having the horse supple in a, and having a good relationship with your horse. And that's the opposite. The, the, the people that are horrific to their animals like that are way off the scale. And I feel like it does let down the rest of us. Um, what, what are your main, you natural horsemen, horsewomen? Yeah, for the most part, yes. There's not like there's not like any one clinician, you know, that I go by or any method. It's just basically, you know, I think a lot, the majority of trainers out there, you can learn something from. Mm-hmm. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And over the year, I study every, you know, every piece of horse training information, good or bad. You know, I, I'll look through it and, and think about it. Um, and I basically, I mean, I, it's 
it's a natural horsemanship type approach. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, there's some old school stuff um, in there, too, you know, um, just based off of experience that I've had with, you know, breaking colts and working problem horses and things like that. Um, it kind of depends. For me, it depends on, on the horse. But, you know, my, my philosophy is, you know, the calmer a horse is, the quicker they're going to learn anyway. Yeah. You know, a horse that's upset is not going to learn. So, you know, I do try to go with the, the most gentle approach, the calmest approach, and set that horse up for success, you know, so that they get confident in what you're asking of them. Um, and, I, and I will say under that end, I mean, we have, you know, you see, you do see rough handling probably more so here than maybe even in other countries. I don't, I don't really know. But um, we do have some rough, you know, rough riders and rough trainers in all disciplines here. I mean, it. You know, we've the natural horsemanship movement has has done, you know, a big favor to the horse industry because it's more mainstream and people are aware and they kind of open their brains a little bit and think, you know, but we still do have, you know, people that think it's okay to slap a horse upside the head, you know, to get it to turn around a barrel. Um, you know, you do still see that. But I'm I'm glad to see, you know, more kinder means being used in training horses you know than what it used to be it's come a long ways it's still got a long ways to go but i'm glad to see it have you heard of a guy called troy griffiths no i haven't oh okay so he's a friend of mine who lives um just outside new york and he does medieval training and his his method and his philosophy is very similar but it's also very classical so he mm-hmm. takes things from the 18th century and he takes quotes of things that people said in the 18th century and he applies them to today. And actually he says every method that you do and every part of training that you do, you can take something from the 18th century and actually it still fits with today. And so yeah. I find it fascinating because it's all in oldy worldy terms, as I call it. But yes. everything makes sense to today. And I think that sounded yeah. quite similar to you and you, you take old concepts yeah. and still yeah. reuse them. I'm a big, I'm a big fan of, of which they're starting, you hear a little bit more about them since the, uh, about Brandeman movie. But, um, you know, the trainers like Ray Hunt and some of the old guys like that, there's a lot of valuable information there, you know, the things that they taught. Um, and, you know, if you think about it, the old trainers back then, I mean, they had time to spend with their animals where we a lot of times don't. You know, we're so rushed and it's like, you know, if you think about it back then, they weren't, you know, running as hard as we are today. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure there's a lot of valuable information that they had and it's interesting that he uses you know the old quotes like that of course you know like they say everything comes around you know yeah and uh, (laughs) and it's funny because through the years I've tried new stuff and end up going back to the old stuff Mm -hmm. you know so it, it makes sense that you know he would use the older you know the older philosophies and be able to apply them that's pretty cool I'll have to check him out so what disciplines are you a judge at I do hunter, um, hunter jumper, and then western and ranch. Yeah. Um, we have like a lot of what we call schooling shows that have all disciplines pretty much, with the exception we don't. They don't really have dressage necessarily, but sometimes they do. And there's a couple of shows around here that um, I really love to judge, and I do those. And I do I do judge gated classes as well. 
but my my true specialty is is English and Western, really. Oh, nice. So we um, I'm carted through the Open Horse Show Association. You have to test to be a judge with them, and they basically they promote these open shows at a you know at a grassroots level, mm-hmm. um, and kind of bring them together. And they've actually got awards and things like that nationally now. And they're growing every year. They get a little bit bigger, um, but they're a great support group for these open shows that are trying to you know grow their their shows here. So it's it's a good association. It sounds great. And how long have you been doing that for? Oh, goodness. Um, at least, I want to say about 10 years. I've been carted with them for the last probably five or six years, I think. Mm-hmm. But I've been judging for a little over 10 years, I think. So It's amazing. What's your normal day-to-day job then? My normal day-to-day job is I argue with insurance companies. Oh, dear. <laughs> I I, um, I appeal, I do contract appeals for an orthopedic group, and so anytime we're underpaid, yeah. I contact the insurance company and say, you underpaid us for our contract, so I get to argue with insurance companies, health insurance companies all day long. <laughs> it's amazing, so you're in an office all day and you're cowgirl at night, it's awesome. Yes, yes. and every now and then, it's kind of funny because we, our uh, COO had to, to um get a, a ride to go pick up his car the other day and there was nobody else but me that was left and so here's this corporate guy you know that's like perfect I mean he, he's glossed over you know professional and he has to come and ride in my little you know two-door farm pickup truck that <laughs> smells like wet saddle blankets you know and there's hay all over the floor and I'm like oh my gosh I was so embarrassed <laughs> but it leaks over every now and then yeah. <laughs> Francis, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. It's been really eye-opening, definitely. Where can we find you? If you want to look at your blog. Um, I have actually write three blogs, um, Cowgirls with Curves, um, Musings from the Lead Rope, and Talking in the Barn. And then I'm also a guest blogger on Everybody Needs a Little Romance. It's, it's organized by romance writers, but we all get on there and talk about everything but romance a lot of times. <laughs> um, so you can find me there. Cowgirls with Curves is on Facebook, and I'm on Twitter, FJ Thomas on Twitter. Um, so I'm everywhere. I'm on Instagram. You name it, I'm there. <laughs> Amazing. And just quickly, where can we find your book? It's on Amazon, um, and it's on um, the Amazon UK site as well. And the title is Lost Betrayal. And I also uh, wrote a short story, Wins on Indian Mound, that's available in the horror anthology, Now Lay Me Down to Sleep. And both of those are available in the UK. Thank you so much and good luck with everything. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And when I go to Calgary, I'll be giving you a call and saying, hey, jump on a plane and come with me. Oh, yes. (laughs) Yes, definitely. (laughs) All right, FJ. Speak to you soon. Okay, thank you. So last week we spoke to Laura who told us her story of how she tried to buy a horse, she didn't get him vetted and all the traumas that she had when she was buying her pony Um, and then it turned out that she couldn't ride her horse anymore and because we were talking about buying a horse last week I thought we will go on to loaning this week. So I'd like to introduce you to my friend Rachel, she's an amazing riding instructor, she's my riding instructor. How are you Rach? I'm good, hello, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Now you've been through the process of loaning horses, you have helped other people find their first loan pony and you have actually loaned out your own horse as well so I thought I have, you'd yes. be fully qualified for this role today. <laughs> Let's start then with the first time that you decided to loan your own horse. What made you decide to do that? So I was I think about 14 or 15 
and um, my parents couldn't afford to buy me a pony and I've been working at the local riding school which was that was the some knowledge of my equine ability was literally leading a pony around in a head collar and a caravan park at the weekends and I used to love it and I used to do it all day long and um you know that was my life so I, I absolutely loved a pony but couldn't my parents couldn't afford to buy me one um so I came across a lone horse called a lone pony called Minnie Mouse would you believe it <laughs> um and I just I went to try her and looking back now I look back now and I think the owners weren't possibly um they were they weren't in the situation that I'm in where I've got lots and lots of knowledge over the sorts of people that I'd want to look after a, a horse that I owned um mm. because I really didn't have a clue I think one time I phoned her up and said how do you make sugar beet because I had no idea I mean yeah. I, I literally I mean once I rode out in side reins <laughs> you didn't I did rode out in side reins on the main road <gasps> what happened so I really nothing she was a really really good pony but that was not by any means you know anything to do with me that was just pure luck that this pony was just so amazing so actually, looking back, I think, gosh, you know, that was such a dangerous thing that she did, um, really not quizzing me on what I knew and what I didn't know, because I really didn't know anything. I learned on, you know, on the job sort of thing, which I think is, you know, a valuable way to learn for me, possibly not for the pony. Um, however, over the years, you know, I, I got better and, and I fell off a lot less. And um, <laughs> the ponies. They had a lovely life, apart from being ridden inside reins once. Um, and I had her for years, you know, years and years and years. And she was she was great. And then when she went back, I then bought my first horse. So it was a, a really good stepping stone for you then Absolutely. into the transition into having your own horse, learning yeah. what to do. It's almost like you've got full responsibility, but you have a helping hand of like a parent in terms of the owner of the horse to say, you know, exactly. if you need anything, then I'm here. And I do think that's important as well. The person that owns the horse, they need yeah. to make sure that you're the right person for their horse to look after them as well. And it's as much the owner's responsibility, if not more, that that horse is, you know, gone somewhere where someone's looking after it that knows what they're doing, mm. which obviously in my case didn't really happen. Um, thankfully, like I said, I did learn on the job and, you know, everything was fine. But I think quite often people that have these horses on loan get the blame. You know, I put my horse out on loan and it came back really skinny. Well, you know, where were you? This mm. didn't happen overnight. So I do think that, you know, we are very quick to blame to blame the person loaning the pony but actually quite often you know it's a case that we've got to be more prepared to look after that horse even when we're not it's not with us yeah so um having a good communication and, and a good relationship with the person that's learning the horse is vital mm. so important and if you are loaning a horse if the owner doesn't really want that much to do with you or the horse i think that should really ring alarm bells which is where when you go and go into a share or you go into a loan and you have these alarm bells ringing and you're thinking, you know, why would she not want anything to do with me or anything to do with the horse? That's when you need to go and speak to somebody that has been in this situation before, go and speak to your riding instructor, um, go on one of these amazing forums like this one, Horse Hour, where you can go and get lots of help from other people and lots of other advice because she should want to or he should want something to do with what, what's going on when you've got a loan horse, the owner. Well, this very much happened to, in fact, where I keep my horse, um, yep. a few fields along, there was a young girl that's just taken, she's 15, her and her mum have just taken on a cob. 
and the cob got delivered and um, the owners dropped the cob off and then left them and the mother and the the girl had no idea what they were doing yeah so then the horse is getting fat it's got too much feed it's not being ridden because she's actually quite the youngster bless her is actually quite scared of the horse and the mum is trying her hardest but doesn't really know what she's doing either and then luckily we've got quite a good community at our yard so they asked for help and, and help yeah. was provided and it was fine. As it stands, the cob has now gone back to its owner. Because you see, what might have happened during that course of time was the cob begins to get a little bit naughty or a bit cheeky because mm-hmm. it's not being handled properly, not being fed properly, overfed, underfed. And then all of a sudden, either the cob's bad, which it's not, it's just, you know, confused, mm. or the people that had it on loan are bad, which they're not. They just didn't know what they were doing. Yeah. So I think, you know, as professionals, we need to be really, really open to helping people that are actually not going out and buying a £15,000 horse. They're actually just going out to get a horse on loan. And, you know, I wonder whether there's some gap in the market where we can actually help people make these right decisions. And there's, you know, there's been various different things set up over the years where people can go to a website and say what they want out of a loan horse. And if you want to loan a horse, you can go to the same website and, and, and so on and advertise your horse. And the website really just works as an advertisement. It doesn't actually really work as a, an advice thing. Yeah. And then I think that's where maybe, you know, one of the bigger organisations, the equine organisations, can actually give a little bit more help. Because quite often, if we're, you know, the people that have got horses on loan are either maybe people that can't afford to buy a horse straight away or people that aren't sure whether that's what they want or people that haven't got the experience to own their own horse. They all have a horse on loan or a part share or a part loan. And actually, these are the people that need the most help. Yes, because they don't, most of the time, they don't really know what they're doing because it could be a first-time horse or a second-time horse exactly. where they're learning together. So I guess that the I, I always bang on about the welfare of the horses is of paramount importance, yeah. um, but it's finding then the right horse for you, but also having a good relationship with the owner. And if you're the owner, making sure that you stay in contact and have a good relationship with the person that's loaning your horse. And having, and um, as, as the owner actually saying do you know what I am still responsible for the welfare of my horse I might have put her out on loan to you know Joe Bloggs up the road who I vetted and got references for and I've done an agreement and and everything else that you do as a responsible owner but actually you're also still responsible for that horse yeah because at the end of the day anything could happen to him there and that might be it might not be anybody's fault it might just be you know well he might have done it in your field he might have broke a leg or anything anything could happen you're still responsible even though you've been out alone you're still responsible um and as responsible owners i think that's something that we can all you know we could all do a little bit more of when, when a horse goes out on loan so let's let's look at the process then of loaning a horse so let's take your little roo yes. who's your baby who you love and uh, pretty much bred she is so <laughs> roo roo was a, a mistake so lots of people have said, oh, you bought one and you got one for free, which is um, technically very incorrect because the vet's bills were m- much, much higher <laughs> than anticipated. But anyway, we um, we embarked on a, a, a Dartmoor adventure and got four Dartmoor ponies delivered. And they were all about two, between the ages of two and three. Um, and it was Christmas and it she is... It was quite a few years ago. It was Christmas and we got four little ponies arrived. And one of them was a little grey pony and she was quite round. They were all quite round. And the children at work that I, that I teach, I decided we'd name them after Disney characters. So <laughs> we had a piglet. We had a Remy from Matatui. We had a Purdy. She was black and white. And we had an Ariel. 
So Piglet just got bigger and a little bit sketchy. Um, wasn't that wasn't that um, inclined to come into the round pen and do any join up work? She was, you know, much much more nervous than the others. And it was about Christmas time. We said, you know, this something's not quite right here. Mm. Let's um, let's get the vet to come out and have a look. So we got her in the round pen, which was, you know, a day's work in itself. <laughs> and the vet came and took some blood and it transferred. Yes, we were in full. Um, she and was we pregnant were, and you didn't know. Pregnant. And she wasn't, you know, she was only two years old at the time. <gasps> and she was a wee little thing. Um, I mean, she's 11, 11 hands, if that. So we got her, it was it, the middle of the d- deepest, darkest Blanford mud up to your knees mm. we had to get a lorry towed in by a tractor into the field then herd her into the lorry because we couldn't have her giving birth just anywhere because she was it was a very unsafe situation with a with a you know effectively a very wild pony um into the lorry and took her back to our yard which was near where i lived and you know we were on fall watch then really from sort of march onwards and she did have a very early fall. Rue was born on the 29th of March. And, um, and she's been mine ever since, and my son's. So um, she was, she's only still 10 hands now, so she's teeny tiny. And she's, you know, probably half a Shetland, half a Dartmoor. She, you know, she's a real kind, <laughs> 57 baby, but she's our pony and she's not going anywhere. But my son's not interested in riding her at all, and I was pregnant with my second son. So I've got some friends that I teach, and they asked me if, they could, their son could ride her, so they came over to our field, and you know, I, I really wanted them to, to to wanted to see that they were prepared to put a couple of months worth of work in, yeah. not every day, but just coming up, making that extra journey because I was a bit further away than they wanted to, to to have a pony, to come up and really get to know her, and for me to feel comfortable with them having a key to my field, coming in, brushing her, feeding her, giving her lots of attention. And that they could handle any situation that came about. She was very good, but she was quite inexperienced. So I guess the, the, for you then, it was knowing that you can trust them to look after her the yes. right way. For them, it was great because it was almost like a trial period without yes. calling it a trial period where you can offer support if there's any help that they Absolutely. need. Like, oh my gosh, Rue has just, let's say, reared. Why yeah. is she doing that? You can say, well, actually, this is, don't worry. How about you yeah. try this technique? And also, do you know, the pony, the thing is what we always forget in these these situations, whether we're buying, we're loaning, we're trialing, whatever we're doing, is we all forget about the importance of how relaxed and how how secure that pony feels. Is we have a pony on trial, we have a pony on trial for a couple of weeks if we're lucky, we get it to our yard, and then we wonder why it's really naughty or it's out of character, it's something out of character. Well, because it's not in its normal home. Yes. So it wouldn't wouldn't be fair, and I don't feel comfortable, um, especially on a loan basis. The person's going to have my pony for a period of time. I feel more comfortable knowing that I've gone through every check I can and then ask them to come to me for a while. The pony's completely relaxed. The pony's in its own environment. I can just kind of arrive. I don't yeah. need to say I'm going to arrive. I know they're going to be up there at a certain time, so I'm just going to pop up. Um, and also, because it's a, a, a communal field... Other people that I know are coming, come up and look up, look at their horse while they're there, and just everybody's and more comfortable. This isn't in a this isn't in a spying on them kind of way. This is a it's no, supposed it's to be friendly. Here. You're supposed to be all working yeah. together. Yeah. So then, ultimately, what you want is somewhere safe for your pony to go, where mm-hmm. you know she'll be looked after, and you've got a good enough relationship where you can phone them and say, "Hey, can I come and see Rue? Is how she doing?" And also the other way around, if they need anything, they can then call you. You were quite lucky that somebody came to you and, and asked to loan her because uh, most most people have to go 
like advertise them. And that's so, really hard, isn't it? When you look at um, these millions of adverts for horses that are available on loan, and you think, you know, why are they on loan? If we're honest, a lot of us, the reason that horses go out on loan is financial reasons. Mm-hmm. They've gotten really expensive, works, you know, crazy. We haven't got the right time to give the horse, but we possibly don't feel comfortable selling the horse either yet or ever. And it, it's a really, really hard process, a really hard process. But from the owner's perspective of the horse and from the loner's perspective of the horse, do your homework, take your time, don't rush it. If someone's trying to rush you on either party, just don't do it. Mm-hmm. Even if you're desperate to put your horse out there, you know, you don't know how you're going to look after him tomorrow. Don't, because it will. he'll just come back. Yeah. If someone's not prepared to give you the time, then you won't have a good relationship and then you won't feel comfortable to go to them for help or go to them with it with an issue. So, you know, let's say that you you discover the horse hasn't been wormed in the whole time it's been with the people that have got it on loan. If you've not got a good relationship, that's not going to be an easy conversation to have. And, and that can then be construed as to being really critical and then your relationship breaks down and then the pony comes back and, and actually the person that's lost out in all of that is the pony because... Yeah, the pony could have had a really nice home. So it's just, you know, really, really important to keep those lines of communication open all the time. And let's look at the the scary side of things as well, which are, it's almost like the elephant in the room. Some horses are put out on loan and then they're taken and sold on. And that's yeah. the, uh, it is a risk. We know it's yeah. out there. It's happened to another friend of mine. Um, yeah. You know, Tracy, she, she actually, she loaned a horse um, and it was beautiful black little Welsh section D, I think she was. Yeah. And she loaned this pony for four years. Uh-huh. And then she asked the owner if she could buy her. And the owner was fine. She trusted Tracy and said, yeah, it's no problem. You can. So Tracy gave the money over. Yeah. Um, but there was no passport. She said she couldn't find the passport. They came up with a new passport, one of those um, pet ID ones, yeah. you know, the pet plan yeah. ones, which I only just found out isn't even a real passport. Anyone can get a pet ID one. It's not the actual passport. And she... Well, don't forget, because some horses don't have breeding. So if they haven't got breeding, that's the, that's the only passport that they'll have. So, for example, Rue just has a pet ID passport. Ah. And I could have got that for her at any stage, but the, the trick is the microchip. The trick is okay. now the microchip. Because they're now microchip when they're sold. Yeah. Every horse has to be microchipped. It means that that horse essentially shouldn't be able to have two passports. Because the microchip is registered because to one passport. Ah, yeah. oh, I yeah. see. Okay. Well, yeah. she, uh, anyway, Tracy had this horse. Yeah. Um, three days after buying her, it transpired that the person she bought the horse off wasn't actually the real owner. Yeah. She'd had it on loan from the actual owner and sold it on. And if you listen to the story, what, what is evident throughout that whole story is there was no communication. No. So not from not from Tracy's point of view at all, but from the person that had the horse on loan, the person that loaned the horse out, mm-hmm. how long had it taken for them to realise that that pony was no longer where it should be? Yeah, a very, very long time. So this is the problem. This is what we've got to remember is that, that we have got to keep an eye on where they go yes. and where they are. You know, even if it's, I mean, we're so lucky now, aren't we? I'm talking to you on Skype. Mm-hmm. So I'm in my bedroom and my pyjamas <laughs> and my cup of tea. And um, you're, you know, miles away from me and we're having a conversation about horses, which is great. Mm-hmm. And um, there's no reason why you can't communicate. You no. know, 
I'm communicating with my sister and she's in the Mediterranean. Well, when I loaned Tom, I had him for a year when Blackjack first became ill. Um, I used to, we were friends on Facebook exactly. and I used and to email great, photos. It? Yeah, it's and, and I was lucky because she wanted that communication yes. and I wanted that communication with her because I wanted her to feel, well, actually, I wanted her to know that I was doing the best I possibly could to look oh, after her horse. What you know about her is that she was a great owner. Yes. She was serious about who was having him. She made, I came with you and we really had to sell ourselves, didn't we, to mm-hmm. get him. Yeah. And that's a good owner. So that's a good horse. And then you were a great loner. The situation was brilliant. Um, and, it, and it worked. It did work really well. So the risk then, if you're thinking of um, loaning your horse out, yes, there is a risk there. But that's why you have to vet the person that's coming to look at your horse as well. And, and vice versa. Stay in contact. I guess there should be... Well, I guess there's certain rules that you kind of got to have in your head, which is communications number one. You've got to have the communication open. Yeah. You've got to feel comfortable. Um, a trial period. It is okay to have a trial period for both sides. That doesn't mean to say you you can take the horse for three months and you know then decide in three months' time you don't want it. It's just getting to know the humans and getting to know each other and also yeah. getting to know the horse. Um, there's also agreements that you can have. You know, signed actual yeah. lawyer solicitor agreements. Um, that you can download from the BHS website. That's right. I would give people the advice is that if if somebody gives you an awkward feeling, if somebody doesn't give you a great feel when they come to see your horse or when you go to see their horse, don't do it. You don't need to, you know, any agreement in the land is not going to stop someone that was going to steal your horse from stealing your horse. So try and go on your gut instinct. If you're not sure, don't do it. I mean, that's it. That's the the advice I'd give anybody, whether they're buying a horse, buying a house, (laughs) buying a husband. If you're not (laughs) sure, don't do it. Mm. Because there's a reason why you're not sure. And that might be ridiculous. And it might not have actually even come true. But don't do it if you're not sure. Because you'll always kick yourself later on and go, do you know what? I knew that person was going to do that. Take your time. Don't rush. Like I said, communication is the key. Facebook is great for things like this because you can see what what your horse is doing every day there's no reason why you couldn't ask them to send you a video once a month of them riding the horse just so you can see how he's moving you know or you you, can you take a video of him eating his hay once a week so I can just see how he's eating because he had that problem with that molar once and I think that that, that's so important I don't think there's a great deal you can do to stop somebody that was going to take your horse from taking your horse and I think that that is my the honest truth yes yeah um i think what you can do though is is try and prevent situations occurring that weren't you know that, that weren't done maliciously so for example putting a house a horse out on loan and not contacting them for three years moving yeah. house and then wondering why they sold your horse because you stop those lines of communication um and we don't lo- want to scare you either because no, there are lots of brilliant. people out there that 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 it is the perfect scenario and they would really look after your horse and they'd love they'd love it and look after it as though it's his own for example you know going back to tracy um the actual owner when she did contact her tracy sent her all these videos and and pictures and said you know i've loved her for the yeah. last four years um please just let me know that she's okay and as it stands the owner then gave tracy the horse and said look you know you've been looking after yeah. her I, I had no idea i'm partly wrong for not knowing what was going on however however the girl the middle person did actually pretty much steal the horse 
loaned it she couldn't find her couldn't get in contact so anyway it's a nice happy ending because tracy then got the horse and still has her and loves her but the point is there are lots of people out there that it's the perfect scenario so just because just because it no longer works for you for lots of people this is the way i see things just because that horse is no longer working for me or has a use for me i'm not going to just sell it i don't want to sell it i want to keep it but I also want him to do something. I don't want him to just sit in the field. Yeah. I would like her to do something. I'd like her to be attached to a small person. So <laughs> learning is perfect for me. Mm. And I'm very lucky in that because I'm quite, a, I, you know, I move around quite a lot for my job. I get to drive past her field four times a week. Aww. You know, that's not always great for the, the loners because I'll <laughs> ring up and say, why has she got that rug on in the field? Um, <laughs> but because we get on and we communicate, that's fine. Yeah. So, yeah, loaning can be brilliant. Loaning can really work. So if you're thinking then of loaning a horse, but you don't you don't know of one, what websites, where would you recommend they go and look? Most counties have a local equine website. So there are lots nationally that you'd be able to look at. So just your average equine advertising website. So you'd be able to buy horses under 14.2, over 14.2, um, and then horses for loan. Yeah. So there's no, no, no harm in looking at things like that. And with those um, kind of things, when you are looking through the adverts, I guess it's important to go in with the mindset of as though you're buying a horse, even absolutely. though you're loaning. So, well, because you're still putting your life in his hand. Yeah. So what you've got to make sure is that you've got a clear, you know, clear outline of what you'd like. And like when you're buying a house, compromise is the key. You must remember that the horses on loan don't always tend to be quite so varied as the horses that are for sale. So if you want a 13-2 spotted Welsh Sea, you're probably possibly not going to get one of those um, <laughs> because you're only going to be able to pick from what you've got, what's there. Um, it's the difference between buying a brand new car and buying a second-hand car. You're only going to get what's, what's, what's actually out there for sale. It's, it's being too... open-minded and it, it's a learning experience. It yeah. gives you a chance to try a horse maybe if you were thinking, I mean, don't go for a thoroughbred if you were thinking of getting a cob, but, you know, you could have a mare instead of a gelding, that yes. kind of thing. Yeah. So... Um, just be, yeah, very open-minded and try more than one. So especially if you're a first-time owner or a loner, the temptation when you get sit on that horse for the first time and it's the first horse you've ever tried is to go, oh my gosh, it's so exciting. You know, this is my first horse. And not to actually realise, think think about what's important to you. Think about the feel the horse gives you. If you were paying to ride this horse, would you want to ride this horse again at a riding stables? That's always quite a good question to ask yourself. Mm, yeah. Um, because when we start to think about paying at a riding school, we go, oh, well, I like that one. I don't like that one. Be quite critical probably not vocally, in your head critical, um, and go away and, and really, really think. Also take someone with you. Make sure that you've got someone who really does know what they're doing, so an instructor, um, someone that's only got your best interests at heart. Make sure you video yourself riding the horse because even though you're not buying it, you need to know that you're not too tall, too wide, too short, too long in the leg, too short in the leg, um, et cetera, et cetera. And try them in a very different, lots of different scenarios, um, hack him alone hack him in company if you've not bought him to hack then that's not quite so important try him in the school if you get bought the horse to jump then maybe take him out to a competition make sure that you're comfortable controlling him in a competition and thoroughly thoroughly vet anybody that's going to take your horse so from the other perspective um, it is vital to make sure that you you watch these people ride your horse in all these different situations so that you know that they can cope with your horse. So it's not just from the loaner's perspective, can they cope? From the owner's perspective, are you comfortable that they can cope? 
That's amazing advice, Rachel. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Now, you're not on Twitter, so we can't follow you. You can't follow me on Twitter, (laughs) but I... But, Rachel Smith, you are an instructor in Dorset, so if anybody... on the BHS website. On the BHS website. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget, you can share your stories. Talk about your charity, your business or your event at hashtag horse hour on Twitter. It's every Monday. All you've got to do is include the hashtag horse hour in your tweet. And that's between 8pm and 9pm UK time. Speak to you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.